Welcome to the ACO Show. I'm Josh Israel, a psychiatrist and a medical director at Allidade. Today, we talk to Bob Kocher, who's a healthcare investor and a partner at the venture capital firm Venrock. And I'm Joe Schunkweiler, a physician by background and the leader of adoption and training here at Allidade. This conversation with Bob Kocher was really interesting on many levels. He took us through his thinking and how he invests in emerging companies and what he looks for in high-performing teams, as well as going through his interesting background of uh, working in the Obama administration, as well as working as a healthcare consultant at McKinsey. Uh, I think you'll definitely enjoy it. Here we go. Dr. Bob Kocher, a healthcare investor and partner at venture capital firm Venrock. Bob, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you. So you've had a really diverse experience within healthcare, which is a, a common theme here at Allidade. Um, can you take us through your journey and, and how you got here? I went to medical school. <laughs> and then the plan was to become an oncologist. Uh, my mom, uh, when I was in college, had breast cancer. So I began to see her get treatment, and I thought, wow, it'd be really great to serve oncology patients and help them. And so the plan then was to eventually go work at Fred Hutch Cancer Research Center in Seattle and work on cancer treatments. So I went to medical school, took a couple years off, and, and did Howard Hughes um, Fellowship and studied basic, basic science up here at NIH. Then went back and finished in medicine and began an oncology fellowship, Dana-Farber, kind of on, you know, on that plan. And as I did that, I got really interested in how hospitals work, and specifically, why was it that I, the, the most junior person in the entire place making all the decisions about what, what to do to patients, mm-hmm. made no sense to me that you'd let me like, have the privilege of telling you what to do when there were all these Harvard professors running around that wrote the books. And so I asked the person running the hospital, you know, why do you do it that way? He looked at me with this old prof- professorial look of, you know, young young doctor, you don't really understand. Uh, you should go learn about business. And so I was like, okay, how do I do that? And he said, well, go get an MBA. And when I went home and told my wife that I might get more schooling, she threatened to kill me. Uh, and said, if I do more schooling, <laughs> I wouldn't do it with her. And so I went back to him and I said, uh, what's plan B now on this MBA thing? My wife nicks that one. He said, well, go to McKinsey. You got to learn how, how healthcare works. And so I'm like, okay. So I applied to McKinsey and went there and spent several years working with hospitals. And I realized that um, all of them are are pretty screwed up from the point of view of how they're run and and how they make their money and sort of what matters. And that got me really curious about why that is, uh, which led me down a path of economics. And and really, it's it's how we pay for health care that leads to a lot of the inefficiency and duplicity and lack of patient-centeredness and and just lack of empathy. And so I'm like, okay, well, let's try to change that. And so I spent the next several years trying to write papers and think hard about how would you change how we pay and what do you have to do to create the conditions to change how we pay. Uh, And then, thank God, I got the opportunity to go into the government and work on changing how we pay uh, in the Obama administration for a few years where I met Dr. Mostashari. 
And then after that, I spent the next several years trying to work on applying the changes for how we pay to actually make the healthcare system that we that we all hope for, which is one that is much more efficient and, and much more focused on delivering great outcomes and then making more money uh, when you deliver better outcomes to patients. So that's sort of the, the arc. I would say in, in retrospect, it sounds coherent, but going forward, it wasn't planned at all. It was really a, a guided, you know, a, a journey to create mentors and, and lots of learning. What do you think about being a physician has helped you make those transitions? And then as a follow-up, in the investing world, what about being a physician has uh, enabled you to do that? Being a physician's super helpful if you're trying to make healthcare work better because nobody, I think, understands how healthcare works better than a doctor who's cared, to pay, cared for patients. And so much of my time now is spent on this, how do we untangle all of the administrative stuff, the complexity, the the 10,000 versions of how to code something, the senselessness of like, why do we have to fill out these forms? Like prior authorization, but, but, but like we know they like they needed it before. <laughs> like, like what, you know, why are we doing it again? The absence of information, I think about people I referred to, I referred to you if I thought you were seemed really intelligent and you went to great medical schools. But I didn't really know, are you great? I'd ask patients, like, how was the doctor? And they're like, oh, fine. Like, it was very hard for me to know. And so I spent my time thinking about how do we reorganize this whole thing such that the people who are most vulnerable and sick get the best care. Um, the really serendipitous thing is that actually we can afford to spend the most for the people who need the most. I, I, I can deliver tons of resources and, and skill to our sickest patients because that's where you can save the most money. The most avoidable complications are in those who are the sickest. And so that's a, a beautiful thing. I spend my time trying to figure out how do I create a, like use the forces of capitalism to make the system organize around those people such that we actually do work to help them not get sicker and that that's how you make money as opposed to letting them sadly like get sicker and then make money on that. And what's great is that that's the frail, that's the elderly, that's the most poor among us who, who should get the best care and be treated with the most dignity and respect. So think about how to create that system. As a doctor, I've been there. I've seen it not work. I've seen me give patients instructions that like, are evidence-based but also impossible to follow. You, say, you know, take these meds, take this one once a day, this one twice a day, this one with food, but not this one without food. Like, you know, and then see this doctor on Monday and then get a test on Tuesday and then I'll see you on Wednesday. And if anything feels funny, you can call this. Like, like that set of instructions isn't compatible with life <laughs> uh, because people actually have jobs and family and, and other priorities as well. And I think about like, that's how we did healthcare before we tangled it up. And then I, as a doctor, like spent another hour, like coding and writing and dealing with like all that stuff I don't say. Uh, and then I handed Xerox papers to five people who then a month later would send them back to me with questions. And so I think about how to fix that. And if you haven't done that, it's very hard to know how to fix it. As an investor, I think about a lot about the timing. Like in my mind, I can imagine lots of ways to make healthcare better. Like AI would be cool. But I think about, well, what can be adopted? How do I get it into workflow? And how do I help a doctor who's really busy like make one change and, and make that change worth it and matter and, and which changes are big enough that I can motivate them to do it. And so as an investor, it's much more about like what can happen when and also how do I stop the gorillas from stopping it? Like a lot of healthcare is zero sum. We spend $3.5 trillion and it's growing faster than anything else we're spending money on. But 
nobody makes any money in healthcare either. It's the other crazy thing. So hospitals are, you know, really proud when they make three percent profit margins. Insurance companies like, you know, their stock goes up when they make three percent profit margins. Doctor offices typically like don't have any money left over at the end of the year. Labs and SNFs don't make any money. Only people that make money is pharma. Uh, but if you think about the three point five trillion, eighty five percent of it's not pharma. It's like everything else. So I have to think about innovations that actually work for people who don't have any extra money to spend, who need to like have that investment pay for itself and who have no extra time or resources. And so I think about that as an investor a bunch. As an investor, it seems like one of the things you're trying to do is figure out the rules of the game and then figure out how within the capitalist system to make it financially sustainable for people to get good care and to doctors, for doctors to be able to give good care. Um, but you were also involved in the Obama administration in writing the rules and making the field of play. Um, when you think back on it now in the, the Affordable Care Act, what do you think we got wrong and what do you think we got right now that you're actually sort of in the game of trying to, to improve things? I think it's extraordinary how much is right about the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act, despite massive sabotage by people who don't want it to succeed, manages to keep working. We have, in this last midterm election, you know, states that are very red ratifying Medicaid expansions to say we need to give access to care to people because it's actually good for our states, it's good for our economy, it's good for our citizens, it's good for my Republican voter base. Uh, we're in the middle of open enrollment now, and what we're seeing is the private sector picking up the slack and enrolling millions of people directly and electronically on the federal exchanges. Uh, we're seeing Republicans realize that there's no better alternative than the Mitt Romney-inspired health care plan that we passed uh, because it works. And what's exciting about the ACA is that it's the, you have to tackle health care, I believe, by going after cost, quality, and access. And the ACA does a good job on all of them. We've had our lowest eight years of cost growth in America ever, thanks to the ACA. Medicare had actual real spending drop for the first time two years in a row. Uh, we're seeing millions more people get access to care, and we're, not, we're seeing the system actually be resilient and, and offer them care, and we're not seeing the, the lines that Republicans predicted. We're not seeing untoward dropping and other kinds of things. And quality is improving dramatically in America. Whether you look at the Medicare Advantage STARS programs and you see how many plans have made real, real progress on HEDIS measures, look at the ACO program and how people make great progress on preventive care. Uh, look at readmissions reductions, you're seeing dramatic reductions. And it's by doing them all together that you can actually do a lot uh, as opposed to doing them one at a time. And I believe that we can't, you know, nobody wants to go back. Like what's great about the ACA is we changed a bunch of the ways we pay for healthcare. And at first, doctors were scared. You know, they, didn't, they weren't sure how it was going to work. Um, and what we're seeing now is just not just more rapid adoption, but the acceleration by the Republican folks in charge to say, like, we like this not be for service thing, too. We want more people to do it. We see MACRA, which is another law which passed post-ACA, which encourages doctors to move into these new models. And we're seeing um, no doctor say, like, I want to go back. Like, please put, take me back to the RVU fee-for-service days. Um, I really want more bad debt uh, and to deal with higher deductible health plans and, and the individual market with out-of-pocket maximums and, and underwriting. Nobody wants that. You know, even Mark Meadows, you know, who, who was one of the fiercest opponents of the ACA, you know, says, what I do want guaranteed issue and community rating and, and subsidies and, and essential benefits. I just don't like the ACA. But then when you peel back, you're like, well, actually, that is the ACA. Yeah, and so, that's a big chunk of it. Um, 
And so I'm proud of it. But to me, as the kind of the, the doctor economist person working on it, the two big goals were I need to change the information that we have. And then I need to change the incentives. If you change just one or the other, you don't, you don't get magic. But together, it's information and incentives. That's the oxygen that drives the change. In new incentives for doctors for how to work, um, they'll say, okay, I'll do that. And we tried that actually in the 90s with capitation with no information. And that doesn't work because you can't manage that. But we also had, at the same time, the Great Recession. And as part of that and the stimulus, we were able to actually fund the digitization of American healthcare. And with that, you have the information, which allows the doctors to actually understand how to prevent care, how to refer better, how to manage cost, where the excess spending is. So it's those two things together that the ACA brought together that allowed us to actually get on this path towards a much better health system. Here at Allidaid, we we try to measure every decision and every uh, initiative that we do on three guiding principles. So good for patients, good for providers, good for society. And that uh, I was reminded of that when I spoke to a, a colleague from business school um, who now is at a, a health tech venture capital firm in Boston. Uh, and he brought up, uh, I, was, I was talking to him about a certain idea, and he sort of rattled off his firm's investment thesis on that space, the same way we do those, you know, uh, those three things, almost like a mantra. Um, and I was fascinated by it, and we had gotten to the, a long discussion about investment theses and how that works for investors. Um, would you be willing to share your own investment thesis and, and how uh, Allidate is part of that or plays into that? Sure, I laugh because we actually don't have a thesis. Mm-hmm. My thesis is find a great leader and then find a problem that I find exciting. And, and that actually is all of it. And my thesis is find great people and then problem solve with them towards ideas that you both like and then start them. And so most of the things that we do actually are projects that we start with people that we think are extraordinary. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think about basic business things like there needs to be a big market. I need to believe that there's demand for the thing and there are hopefully some barrier to entry and some network effect. Like, you know, that's Table all the stakes. basic stuff. Yeah. yeah. But but most venture capitalists seem to have like a little secret piece of paper that's mm-hmm. like, I want to invest in AI and in Medicare Advantage and uh, and gamification in your in your and so then they look for the best idea and like those tiny buckets, and and that's not that's a that's never my approach because if I'm trying to pick the best of a set of bad ideas or companies that aren't great like I'm not going to do well so almost everything I do is a is a fresh start with a good person, and the only thing that I can't compromise on is the person. Mm-hmm. You have to I mean you need a freak of nature phenotypically abnormal, extraordinarily inspiring, really smart, introspective learner to start a company. And those people are rare and hard to find. And so I spend my life searching for that. That's what I look for. The ideas are actually the easiest part because healthcare, I mean, everything about it is messed up. <laughs> so there's like, there's not an idea that you'll have that I don't think is a good idea. It's like, okay, well, who can do it? That's, that's the question. And then once you, once you find that person, once you make that leap, what do you do with that company to see that it's still on track? What are some of the things that you look for? Recruit more good people uh, is step one. Uh, step two is help it sort of get its early customer traction. So every company is, needs to be blessed by a few really good early customers who are both loving enough to try the thing and to give you the feedback before they fire you. And so with any company, the first three or four people who you work with who use it end up being 
critical. So you have to pick them well. You need to pick people who actually are capable of giving you good feedback, who are going to be uh, folks who will help you get the more, you know, the next set of people who um, wanted to succeed, you know, who aren't like, viewing this as like, I need, a, I need a widget, like if this widget doesn't work, I'll buy another one. Uh, and so we work a lot with that. And then applying the learnings to figure out how do you then take what you just learned in your first few customers and then make something that actually can scale. And that's kind of step two is, okay, how do I eventually make this thing reliable without the world's best people? Because in any startup, I can, the first 10 people, I mean, we can handpick brilliant people. And so if I'm going to, you know, staff people like you on the, you know, supporting the first few doctors, well, it's going to go well because you're going to make it go well. And then you have to figure how do I make it go well without having like the world's most talented people like, like behind the scenes, like being the duct tape. And besides Elevate, any other investments that you're in right now that are, are interesting to hear about? They're all interesting to hear about. Like, like which <laughs> child, kid, which, yeah. which one of your children is doing the best? Um, uh, I'm attacking kind of the notion of how to redesign healthcare from a handful of angles. Uh, so another recent investment is a company called Devoted Health, which is a Medicare Advantage insurance company. And we like to think of it as kind of a payvider. Uh, one of the observations that led to that company is the notion that insurance companies have a lot of information about like, what you should do when it comes to getting your health care. They aren't good at actually helping patients benefit from that. And so they are doing three things. One is building a very engaging, we call it guide, um, but person who you will know and you'll have her, his or her phone number and you will call and they will help you on anything whether it's get to the doctor, make an appointment, know what to do, get them, like they can solve any question for you. And they have all the time in the world to help you. And you meet them actually when you sign up for your healthcare. You, you're introduced to your guide, they do an onboarding, like it, it's a formal like welcome to devoted. Uh, that guide is made awesome because we're building all new tech to run an insurance company because insurance companies, not surprisingly, have tech that doesn't do that. And so we're building tech that's the same kind of tech that a proper consumer company would have to help support users. The tech will also help the doctors by giving them all the data. Allidate spends all this time trying to untangle claims data and EHR data and Medicare data and Part D drug data and make sense of it. We're building tech that does that so that the doctor has actual data that's useful, that's real time. Like every time there's an eligibility spike, like they know where it is. And, and, and so we're giving the doctors that data. And then the third thing we're building is a house called Medical Group to close some of the gaps that naturally exist in those markets. So. If you're frail and elder and post-hospital, like we can go to you and take care of you and we can bring things to you. Uh, and not surprisingly, that will lower a bunch of hospitalizations and bed days. And so it's a patient experience piece. It's a bunch of new tech to run the whole thing. And then it's, a, it's the provider support to help the PCPs actually take better care of patients. Uh, that's been a fun company to launch. It's launching right now in Florida. Uh, and it's going to be really exciting to see that kind of grow. Uh, another doctor facing company is one called Suki. S-U-K-I, and what they're doing is it's an amazing team of ex-Google engineers who can listen to doctor-patient conversations and, and convert it into the note that I would type for a visit. And it can do it amazingly well. This is, you know, voice is something that, that actually is able to be understood and organized. And not surprisingly, if you come in with sinusitis, like I write a note, like the sinusitis notes I've written in before, you know, before. And so the computer's read all my old notes, so it knows like, okay, this patient has this. It's probably gonna be like that kind of note. It listens to the conversation, it knows my voice versus the patient's. I walk out of the room and a 98% complete soap note is written. 
And I go through and, sh- and I go confirm, and it pushes into the HR, and it saves it up to hours a day of coding and, and writing. So that's a super cool one because getting that screen out of the pa- of the mm-hmm. doctor patient relationship is something that I, I dream about because my best interaction is actually looking at the patient and and in in the, to their eye and like talking to them and then touching them and examining them and explaining things to them and typing is not part of like that that trust building part. And so finding ways to change the user interface is something that I, that I think a lot about. I think that will help with doctor depression and, and burnout. It will help with, I believe, patient patient engagement and adherence and compliance and sort of having patients achieve better outcomes because they will get more out of that interaction. Uh, and it creates a lot of productivity so that we can get more work done. And so those are examples. Uh, a, a fourth one is one called Verda Health, which is a really amazing treatment for type diabetes. Turns out, that when I went to medical school wasn't quite right when it comes to diabetes. We were told that patients could still eat 10% of their calories and carbohydrates every day, which is 200 grams of carbohydrates. Since type 2 diabetes is a treatment that <laughs> is of an inability uh, disease where you can't car- uh, metabolize carbohydrates, giving you much carbohydrates every day is like not a great way to help that disease get better. If you restrict the carbohydrates a lot more, which is what this company helps you do, you induce what's called ketosis, where you use your fat for energy. When you do that, your body gets sensitive to insulin again, and you can put into remission type 2 diabetes and get people off of their insulin and have normal hemoglobin and one sees, and they lose a bunch of weight, and they're much happier. And so this is a company that's scaling a treatment that's radically more effective than anything on the market, and it's really cool because the patient stories you get about how you've changed someone's lives and, and taken them away from this terrible feeling of insulin in a restaurant in the bathroom that makes you feel awful uh, is really, really inspiring. And so I, I, th- I think about how to redesign healthcare from a bunch of different angles. I, listening to you, I, you know, I, I don't think that Venrock is a social investment fund, but anybody hearing you describe these, I think, would just root for all of these companies to succeed. Uh, is that part of, of what goes into these decisions for you? Absolutely. One of the privileges of being a venture capitalist, you get to choose what you what you invest in and what you do. And so I do things that are important to me and, and interesting. And Venrock as a firm, actually, initially was the, the Rocks is for Rockefeller. So we were initially the Rockefeller family office. Uh, and the Rockefellers remain one of our largest investors. We're now a traditional venture capital fund with other investors too. But the people who give us money are wanting us to do things that are useful. And what's great about healthcare is that you can build enormous companies that are very, very valuable. So they're great investments that pick up on this alignment of incentives between cost, quality, and, and access. And what I love about the companies that you rattled off and, and others that I'm aware of that you've been involved with. Um, there are no uh, solutions looking for problems there. Like these are very clear. No, well, that, that's that's the secret to being a good venture capitalist is you want to invest in things that are needed now. Uh, a lot of the things that the people email me saying, "Would you like to invest in?" might be good ideas, but they're just not things that we can do now. And and that's a bad investment. I have to do things that, that there's people who will pay for it now. Yeah, I'm I'm on a. Um... Uh, I went to MIT for grad school, and I'm on a, a bunch of discussion boards with a lot of very, very smart, very tech-focused folks, for WhatsApp groups and what have you. And uh, some of the ideas that come through, I have exactly that reaction. I'm not investing in them, but just my reaction of reading them, like, that's cool. It's objectively a cool thing, you know, to have all these bells and whistles engaged in the, the patient-doctor interaction. But it doesn't solve anything. Like it's, there's no value add. There's no pain point that's being alleviated. So um, that's awesome. I really that's a, an exciting portfolio. Um, and one of your responsibilities as uh, an investor is often to be a member of the board of these companies. Um, every ACO we have here at Allidade 
has a board made up of members of the practices within the ACO. Uh, and I know there's a lot of discussion. Um, my One of the teams that I run here uh, gets practices set up at their very early stages just after they sign, which is really a fantastic place to be because you're, you're building that process together with the practices. But there's a lot of, uh, there are often many questions from the practice about what it means to be on that board and what that entails. So um, as you think about being a board member for an early stage business, you know, what, are you, what are your goals as being part of that board? You know, what are your responsibilities as being part of that board? My goals are to help the companies grow faster and achieve more. Basically it. The other thing I think about is how do I help them accomplish more Kind of each quarter than you'd expect. You, you want to create that dynamic. And you do that by having fresh eyes and listening really carefully, hopefully asking the hard, correct questions and coming back to them and saying, like, let's, let's really think about it. And then remember and come back and then learn. A lot of what a board can do that's helpful is to be the, the learning function which is that we talked about this six months ago. Like, let's actually look and see what happened. Like, what, what, what will we do differently? Like, how will we do this better? And people who are in companies, whether you're at a, a doctor on the ACO boards or at Allidate here, you're doing so much work every day just getting the work done that you don't step back and take stock and say, well, what, what did I learn? Mm-hmm. And what would I change and what would I do differently? And so a lot of what a board can do is that. Another thing a board can do is be the calibration because I have the privilege of seeing a bunch of different companies, a bunch of different stages, and I can help say, like, I don't think you're thinking about that part of your business quite right, or this person probably isn't going to be the right person in two or three years because you need a different set of skills for this job. Like, let's begin thinking about how you're going to get the right people into the right roles so you can continue succeeding. I think a lot about the trade-offs of growth versus spending versus margins uh, and when do you want to grow faster? When should you not grow faster? Like, how do we competitively win in a market? Is it a land grab or is it is it not? Um, are there certain competitors I have to make sure that I'm outflanking and, and not thinking? Uh, should I acquire something to make the business better? Uh, it's a lot of the trade-off prioritization. You, you can imagine that, particularly for companies building software, you have a never-ending list of features that would be really cool to have. And they all take time. And, and they all cost money. So I was thinking through like, how much of that should I build versus should I go hire more people to go walk into doctor's offices and help them physically? And, and so it's kind of thinking through those trade-offs such that you don't head to the point where you've suddenly spent all the money and haven't gotten to where you need to be. And so part of the, the other thing I think about as an investor is how do I create enough progress between when I need to go raise capital that I have a business that's worth raising more capital for and being that coach to a CEO but I think the single most useful thing you do is that you both bring energy, encouragement, feedback, and fresh eyes to help people who are spending all their time thinking about a hard problem hopefully solve the problems better. And as one of our early investors and, and board members, has your thinking about Allidade changed at all? The trajectory of the company, you know, the mission, all that kind of stuff? Actually, I was your first investor. Yes. <laughs> the earliest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The like, earliest. Like, there wasn't one before me. Um, I think that the team has done a wonderful job at adapting and learning. The basic idea was right, which was 
it, that small independent doctors are the most effective agents of change in the American healthcare system. Nobody can redesign care faster and better to help a patient avoid complications than a small practice that knows the patient. I did not realize that when I was at the White House. I thought that we needed big integrated delivery systems because you needed under one roof every specialist and hospital and social, you know, psychiatrist and pharmacist and have it all be one big team. And while Kaiser and Intermountain groups do that quite well, it turns out the single best way to do it is to actually have a, a doctor um, who you've gone to for many, many years who knows everything about you and your family and your social context and, and, and like what works with you. Just be paid to do that. And, and that was the idea of Allied. It was, well, let's help these doctors who already know the patients better than anybody else. They don't, they don't need AI systems to say who, who's going to be sick because they know you. I mean, doctors don't really need decision support if they've had an engagement, if they've had a relationship with the patient for the last 20 years. Like, they know already like which, what to worry about. And so that was the first idea. And the thesis was we can help these doctors have vibrant businesses that actually are more successful, that will not be bought by a hospital, that will not sort of go out of business, that actually will grow and take market share and be more successful. And that these payment models allow that to happen and that we can help them get the scale of the big guys by bringing them together into these groups such that they can have like the same competitive power as a large health system without having to be part of a large health system and that that would give us a better approach to making money for Allied and delivering lower cost healthcare to America and making these doctors richer. That was the idea. And that idea has proved correct. Uh, the data now is far better than I would have predicted which is actually, when you look at the Medicare data from this most recent year of regulations, turns out that the what they call low revenue, which are the independent doctor-run ACOs, saved more money than what's called next-gen, which are like the Kaiser-type ACOs, the integrated delivery system ACOs, which is not what we would have expected. We would have expected that like Geisinger and Intermountain and John Hopkins would, would be like awesome. It turns out, no, no, no. Small doctors in West Virginia and Delaware and Kansas are much, much better than those people. That I didn't know. And that's been fun to learn. I thought we would end with your healthcare predictions. Sure. Um, every year you put out a list I enjoy reading, and you there are a couple on the list this year that particularly pertain to ACOs um, and doctor satisfaction. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on those. Sure. So I think we're now at a point where you're going to have doctors really want to be part of physician-led ACOs for a couple reasons. First, it's much more fun as a doctor to work with physicians, not with a health system. So I, I predict that you're gonna see some of these large hospital-employed medical groups say, like, forget it. We're gonna go back on our own because we can move faster than the hospital can. We can do things better if we were independent and we can actually make a lot more money. And around the country, there are successful independent doctor groups that have doubled their incomes in new payment models, whether it's the ACO program and or versions of Medicare Advantage. And so you're going to see people say, well, why am I suffering here in a health system where I'm not treated with respect, I'm paid half of what I make on the outside and I'm not able to do what I want to do. My friends are happier, uh, I want to be part of that. So I think you're going to see fractures of these hospital and medical groups and have independent groups have a resurgence. That's helped by a couple other things. One is the fact that there's capital to support that. So one of the 
areas of private equity investment and venture capital investment has been primary care groups. And so there's been a bunch of successful money going into primary care, which helps make it easier to break free. And then also the new regulations that CMS proposed actually help the independent practices do better. They have a, a more favorable set of rules. And so economically, CMS has said, you're going to actually do better if you're independent. And so I think those forces all make me think that you're going to have lots of adoption of both the ACO rules, but also independent PCPs. Another prediction is related to Dr. Happiness. I mentioned this company, Suki, that's doing AI. There's a bunch of people doing AI, voice in AI. <laughs> There's a bunch of people working on better doctor interfaces. And one of the things that you hear a lot when you go to hospital conferences is sort of this physician burnout problem and how do they, what do they do about it? And so I, I think you're going to see investments made in that area too to, to just declutter the, the experience being a doctor, even in those large health systems and certainly in the independent groups, which, which I, I am very hopeful for. Well, thank you so much for coming in. And we, we look, hopefully we can check in with you in 2020 and see what panned out. I look forward to 2020 and listening to the shows in between. Thanks, Bob. Thank you.